Um, we started a series in the Gospel of Mark a long time ago. In fact, uh, today is around week uh, 58 of this great series in the Gospel of Mark. So, yes, it's been going for a long time. And uh, what we did is we took a break uh, for several weeks, and we went through a little series called The Signs of Life. And what we're going to be doing now is getting back into the series of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be going through this remainder of the series of the Gospel of Mark until Easter. When Easter comes, uh, we'll actually be looking at the very last chapter of the book of Mark, which also happens to be about the story of Jesus' resurrection. So uh, we're going to continue this, and what we're going to do is... Traditionally, or historically in a lot of ways, at least for the past several you know, hundred years or several hundred years, uh, the church has celebrated what's typically known as Lent. Uh, it's not necessarily a biblical practice, but it's something that people have done to basically say it's a way to remind themselves to consider to go into the season uh, prior to uh, the resurrection, prior to Easter, prior to what's called the, the Passion of Christ, meaning the death of Jesus, which would be uh, culminated on Good Friday uh, like I said, ultimately taking place or climaxing in the day of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Uh, Christians for hundreds and hundreds of years have basically devoted uh, a time frame to really consider what God has done through his death and ultimately through his resurrection. And uh, I would like to suggest to us that would be a great way for us to spend the next several weeks as we're looking at the Gospel of Mark to consider really to really meditate upon what God has done and what God has accomplished through Jesus' death and ultimately resulting in and through the resurrection. And so we're going to begin to sort of finalize our study in the book of Mark doing this. And I want to read, uh, as we're going to be picking up in sort of the latter parts of Jesus' life, uh, we left off in what's called the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And that's what we're going to pick it up this morning is begin to take a look at the story of the Garden of Gethsemane and what happens in there. Some of us may be familiar with the story. Those of us that aren't, I want to read the passage in Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 32. I'm going to read down from verse 32 down to verse 42. And uh, I'll pray after that and we'll begin to take a look at this uh, great story of the life of Jesus in a very unlikely scenario where up until this point we've seen Jesus full of strength. Jesus has hardly given us any uh, inclination or any, in, any indication that he is fragile in any way. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, we've seen Jesus very strong. When Jesus speaks, things are done. When Jesus prays, things happen. Uh, Jesus is always strong up until this point in all of the Gospels. But for the very first time in Jesus' life, It's as if the Holy Spirit pulls back the veil and reveals to us something about the life of Jesus that's totally unexpected. In fact, what we'll begin to see in the life of Jesus in this particular period of time is Jesus begins to unravel. He begins to come undone. He begins to break apart, begins to falter. In fact, one of the other gospel accounts, uh, according to Luke, he actually tells us that physically Jesus begins to break down. He actually begins to sweat great drops of blood. So this is actually the first account of Jesus shedding his blood in his earthly ministry, climaxing, culminating ultimately in his death, and then taking place through the greatest triumph of Jesus on the, over the cross, which would have been his resurrection. So I'm going to pick it up around verse uh, 32. We're going down to about verse 42. So follow along, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. It says, And when they went to the place called Gethsemane, He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then he took with him Peter and James and John and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, 
My soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And then he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter and Simon, uh, said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and he prayed and saying the same words. And again he came back and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And he said, uh, and they did not know what to answer him. In verse 41 it says, and then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? Take your rest. Taking your rest, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. God, right now we ask you that you just open our eyes to this and help us understand something of the depth of the suffering that your son endured for us. God, in so many ways, we have glimpses of suffering in our lives. Things that we endure, things that we find ourselves confronted with, things that are totally unexpected and oftentimes they rock us. God, maybe even some here right now are, are in that very place. And God, I ask you right now that you would help us understand that you are a God that knows what suffering's like. So, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our affections, open our emotions, open our thoughts, God, to the reality of Gethsemane. And so we just commit this time in your hands. We pray, God, that you would just be glorified in it, feel deeply, to love deeply, be transformed, to be people, God, that are transformed by your gospel so that as being transformed, we can go out and help bring transformation. So we just commit this morning in your hands. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to basically take a look at four things this morning, so I'm just going to jump right into it. We've got a lot of stuff to cover, and what I want to do is I want to break it down into four specific things that we'll take a look at over the passage that we just read. And the first thing I want to take a look at is really the unraveling of Jesus. We'll see Jesus coming and done. We saw that. We'll take a look at that more in a second. Second, we'll take a look at the cup of wrath. Thirdly, we'll take a look at substitutionary surrender that Jesus prays. But he prays surrendering himself to the will of the Father. And then finally, uh, we'll actually come back to the garden. All right. Um, Mark, as well as all the other gospel accounts, tell us that this is a garden. And I think there's some significance to that. We'll try to uh, draw some points and ideas from that in just a second here as we finish. But I want to really focus, first of all, on Jesus' unraveling. In verses 32 to 34, uh, you can't help but read that and come to grips with the fact of Jesus' humanity. Um, I mean, it's safe to say up until the, this point in Jesus' life, uh, when Jesus does things, you know, cast out a demon, heals someone who has blind eyes, it's easy for us to look at Jesus and somehow surmise that he's like a superhero. Right, he's like Superman. He's like somebody with great powers, extreme powers. It's easy for us to look at him as the God-man or as God. Supernatural, powerful, and almost in some ways almost unstoppable, impenetrable. Right, there's like there's no kryptonite big enough to take this guy down because he's so powerful. But what we begin to see in the Garden of Gethsemane is all of that is not true. Uh, he does have weaknesses. There is a sense of frailty in Jesus. There is a sense of humanity that we begin to see that we come grips 
we come to grips with in the garden that Jesus begins to unravel. He begins to break down. Now, the reality of the garden is that what happens in the garden, most scholars believe, is not that Jesus actually, in terms of physicality, began to suffer, although it does begin to happen, but what happens to some degree, as most scholars would identify or believe, is that Jesus is shown a glimpse as to what ultimately will begin to happen. And here's what I mean. Is that if we think of Jesus' suffering merely in terms of just simply physical suffering, meaning the cat of nine tails, Jesus was whipped 40 times with this horrendous uh, whip. And now if any of you have, like for example, seen the Passion of the Christ, um, you get an idea of the physical suffering that Jesus would have endured. Uh, not only the betrayal, the emotional suffering that Jesus would have experienced in terms of his closest friends. All of them would betray him. Uh, Judas would have betrayed him with a kiss. Um, ultimately, the cross, we call it the crucifixion. Uh, we actually derive an English word from the crucifixion. We get the English word excruciating from that particular word because of its pain, its sense of torture. Now, the reality is it's easy for us to surmise that Jesus' suffering was merely limited to the physical slash emotional torment that he would no doubt be engaging in just a few short hours. But that does not seem to be the reality of what's happening in the garden. That what Jesus is basically shuddering at, stumbling at, troubled over, uh, listen to the words that he uses to even describe himself. It says this, that he is greatly distressed, uh, that he's troubled. Take a look at, uh, again, another verse. It says in verse uh, 35, actually verse 34 says, and then he said to him, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. So in other words, the words that are used to describe Jesus' emotional condition in this particular setting is that he's shuddering, stumbling, troubled over, emotionally in distress. So much so, as I already made reference to that, Luke actually identifies it began to have its physical consequences upon Jesus that he had and undergone some sort of a physical condition that the stress was sort of boiling over in his skin that it began to basically burst the capillaries and Jesus began to sweat as if it were great drops of blood. Jesus was in unbelievable, unraveling turmoil distress in this garden scenario. Was it simply because of the threat of the physical suffering? And most scholars would all agree that no. That yes, the physical suffering was horrible, it was excruciating, it was painful, it was worse than most of us in this room will ever experience in a lifetime, or a hundred lifetimes. But what Jesus, no doubt, seems to be most troubled over can be found actually in the description of the way he prays to his Father. He describes the prayer to his Father as being Abba. Um, most scholars would agree that the word Abba is sort of a, uh, a word that children oftentimes use to describe their Father. It's a word of intense intimacy and relationship and it would seem as if what Jesus was well aware of that what he was about to go through that comes up in the next phrase that we'll look at in just a second here the cup that Jesus was aware of the fact that something would begin to fracture between him and the relationship that he's always enjoyed with his father in other words this was most disturbing to Jesus this was what was causing his soul to unravel to come undone it wasn't just simply the fact that he would be whipped 40 times. It wasn't just simply the fact that he would have a crown of thorns driven to his head, although all of this is horrible. 
But what Jesus was troubled over most was the fact that he would be losing the relationship with the Father who, is he, who, who he has enjoyed throughout all eternity. And I'll give you an example of this, how this sort of affects human beings. Uh, really, in some ways, kind of makes a lot of sense. I'll give you an example. If you or I were to have sort of a relationship or a mild acquaintance with someone, and in that particular relationship with someone that we're just mildly acquainted with, if they sort of turned on you, began to criticize you or attack you or blog nasty things about you or unfriend you on Facebook, that might be a little bit troubling. You might be like, gosh, that stinks. That's not very nice of them. Uh, if you were going out with, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend, you were going out with them for, say, three weeks, and they decided to break up with you, that'd be a bummer. I mean, you'd be kind of bummed over that. You'd be like, oh, I was just getting to know them. That's painful. That's hard. But if you were married to someone for 30 years and you found out they cheated on you, or they had been cheating on you for the past 15 years and been living a lie, and then ultimately betrayed you and turned on you, or if you had a business partnership with somebody that you had thought that there was friendship, there was relationship, there was camaraderie, there was truthfulness going on between the two of you, but then you begin to realize after a period of time that's not really the case, there was nothing but betrayal, it was built upon nothing but lies, and that betrayal oftentimes would go very, very deep. Or if you had a relationship, say, with a father, and the father did something to you, horrendous, something unspeakable, something unacceptable, physical, sexual, verbal type of an abusive relationship, then what would happen is you would begin to unravel. This is exactly what happens. In other words, to the degree that you have intimacy with somebody, matched by the level of betrayal, will ultimately determine the outcome of pain and unraveling of your soul. Does that make sense? So here's the issue. How close was Jesus with the Father? How much did he love his Father? How much did the Father love him? Well, it could be easily said that the love that the Father had for the Son, the love that the Son had for the Father was, unlike you and I, infinite. There was never any beginning of it. There was never ending, an ending of it. It just always was. There was never any brokenness, never any fracturing of it, never any questioning of it. There was nothing but pure trust, pure relationship, pure love. And it's pure sense. When I mean, and when I use the word pure, I mean it in its real literal sense that it was just wholesome, it was pure, it was undiluted. But what Jesus was facing for the very first time in his life was the prospect of losing that relationship. There would be a severing of it. There'd be a fracturing of it. God would turn his back upon his son. God would abandon his son. The picture is, and on the cross we begin to sort of see this play out, that when Jesus, who throughout his entire life, throughout all eternity, had prayed to the Father, the Father would respond to him. I mean, think about just in Jesus' life as a human being. Every time Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, heal this lady. Jesus through the Father's power, heals a lady. The Father raises this guy from the dead, rises again from the dead. The Father calms a storm, the storm calms. Every single time Jesus prayed, the Father answered. There's this intimacy, this relationship ongoing throughout all eternity past. But for the very first time, Jesus prays to the Father, we'll see this in a moment, take this cup away from me, and yet there's silence. God does not respond. God, in fact, says, we can't do this, you must drink the cup. I'll get more into that in a second. But the reality is, 
is that this seems to be what unravels and destroys and begins to break Jesus down. So the level of relationship that Jesus had with the Father brings his soul this unbelievable sense of torment. Probably the best way you can make sort of analogy of this is think about a child. If you ever were a child and you got lost from your mom and dad, all right, all right, let's say you're walking through Disneyland and all of a sudden for a brief moment, mom or dad turn their back, you don't know really where they're at, maybe they're right behind you, but you don't know that. For a brief moment, you've lost contact with mom or dad. It's kind of why, you know, modern day people have like these kids on leashes, you know what I'm saying, right? But the point of the matter is, imagine being in a very crowded area where that moment happens where you just lose contact of the reality of holding the hand of your mom or dad. I mean, if you've ever been in that situation, you know how absolutely devastating and fearful that is. If you've ever seen a kid sort of enter into that, there's like this overwhelming sense of panic-strickenness that just overtakes them. You ever seen that? They freak out. Literally, they're coming undone. Literally, they are in a stage or a place that can almost be defined as darkness. Hell. They're coming undone. They're losing touch, losing grip with the only thing that keeps them grounded, gives them life. And Jesus was facing this prospect that he would be losing the hand of his father because about what's about to take place, which leads us to the next thing, is that we see the cup of wrath. In verses 35 to 36, I want to read this to you again because it sort of underscores what is taking place here in the story. Verse 35, it says this, and going a little further, actually, verse 34, I'll go back. He says, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. So Jesus asked his disciples, you guys, want you hang out and pray with me? Verse 35, it says, going a little further, Jesus fell to the ground. And then he said, and then he prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. In verse 36, and then he said, Amava, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove the, this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So what we see here with Jesus is that Jesus is making this prayer to the Father. Father, take this cup from me. So the question really kind of has to be asked, like, what is this cup that Jesus is obviously dreading? There's something about this cup, whatever this is, and obviously Almost every single scholar would agree that this is a metaphorical type of a cup, which, uh, remember, Jesus would have been, you know, he was not only the author of the Old Testament, but he was also a student of the Old Testament, so he knew what he wrote, um, as well as everybody else that would have been around there. They would have been aware of various idioms and metaphors that would have been uh, used from the Old Testament, and one of the common uh, metaphors or idioms that was used for judgment is the word cup. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 23, Isaiah 54, these are just some examples of throughout the Old Testament when God basically says, because, referring to Israel, because you guys have walked away from me, uh, therefore you will have to drink the cup of judgment. You will drink a sense of judgment upon yourself because of the wickedness and of the sin that you have brought within to your own lives and your own camp as a nation. And so this is a common reference that oftentimes uh, universally is identified as a sense of judgment. Now the reality is we have to deal with this issue because it's here in the text. So we have to really ask ourselves the question about hell and about judgment and really try to tackle this because you can't read this without a sense of really trying to understand a little bit about what this is. Now the point that I feel is important for us to understand is that in this particular passage Jesus talks about the sense of judgment, the cup of wrath, uh, in this sense of idiom or metaphor. So we've got to deal with this. 
But the reality is, is that we live in a culture today that loves to try to envision a world without a God of judgment. In fact, there is a sense of a, in terms of a common objection. Take a look at the next slide. And one of the common objections is really to this idea, this notion that God is a God of wrath. And what we mean by that is really that God has a wrathful side. God gets angry is what we mean. Sometimes that word wrath of God or God of wrath can oftentimes be caricatured by a God who's got, you know, lightning bolts in his hand. He's just very angry. He's very grumpy. He's kind of like a grumpy old man walking down the street. You don't want to cross him in the wrong way. Otherwise, he'll just slay you. Now, the reality is, you've got to understand that for what it is. It's a caricature. It's a cartoon. In other words, if someone, if you were to go down to, uh, you know, Pismo Beach, and you were to walk up to a guy who's doing cartoons, and you ask them, can you do a caricature of me, you're not going to post that picture of yourself on Facebook with a very large nose, a big, massive Adam's apple. Your eyes are just big, and you look all out of, you know, you're not you're distorted picture of yourself. Be like, this is a perfect representation of myself. Because it's not a perfect representation of yourself. It's a caricature. And you can't take a caricature of God and somehow use that as your means of dismissing God. So you got to deal with this stuff. And what I'm just asking you guys to do is consider to deal with this in a biblical perspective and to try to reasonably, logically think this through for just a moment. Because we have to. We can't just simply dismiss it. We can't just simply push it out because it's there in the text. That whatever it is that Jesus is dreading has to do specifically with this cup that he's about to drink. That he's discussing with his father. Can you let this cup pass from me? And the father apparently says, no. I can't let this pass from you. You've got to drink this cup. You've got to indulge it in its fullest sense in order for us to accomplish what we've set out for you to accomplish. So whatever this is, is that's going on, we have to deal with this. We have to tackle this as best as we can. So we have to deal, first of all, I think, with this objection. And the objection basically is this. I only want to believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. It's a common idea to think about this. That there's a tendency in our world today to just really want to think of it in terms of God just a, a nice guy. He's a really good God, really loving, really kind God that just does nice things. And the notion in terms of the puritanical view that this God in heaven, like I said, the caricature, I don't believe in that. But now the reality is, oftentimes when I have people come to me and they say, well, I don't believe in God, or I don't believe in this particular type of God, I oftentimes like to ask questions like, tell me a little bit about that God that you don't believe in. And oftentimes when they begin to explain to me the God that they don't believe in, I oftentimes agree with them and say, I actually don't believe in that God either. In fact, if that was the only God for me to believe in, I'd be an atheist just like you. But let's get back to what the Bible actually says and reveals about God and God's wrath in particular. So if you're going to deal with this objection, you have to also kind of ask a couple questions. The first question I think is important to ask is, what is your God's reaction to injustice, exploitation, oppression, sabotage, evil? You have to deal with this question. That if God is just a God of love and there is no sense of wrath in him or anger or just righteous anger, then you've got to really ask this question, what is your perspective, view of a God, and his reaction to all of the evil and exploitation that we see around us in this world. Because at some point, let me put it this way, if you don't get angry, if you have a God that does not get angry at sin, or unrighteousness, or even exploitation, or even at what basically happened in, in, in Newtown in Connecticut, if you have a God that doesn't get angry, or if you yourself don't get angry at that, if, if you're a parent, and you don't get angry at the fact that somehow your child was 
slain in some type of sabotage like that, then there's a tendency to look at someone and be like, you're just indifferent. You don't care. You're heartless. You're cynical. You don't have any care or compassion or concern. So in other words, you're not really being loving. Loving people get angry, but they get angry at righteous things. It's really important to know this because there's sort of this really funky, weird teaching within Christian circles that sort of circulated oftentimes that basically says good Christians really just don't get angry. They just love people. No, no, no. Good Christians get very angry at unrighteousness. We should get very angry at exploitation. We should get very angry at women being abducted and sold into sex slavery. We should get very angry at children who are eight years old that are being raped. We should get very angry at these things. We should get very angry at the fact that you and I are just going through water bottles left and right, no big deal, and yet there's parts of the world that they have nothing. We should just get a little bit frustrated over some of these things. But the picture of God in the Bible is that God actually does get angry over unrighteousness. All right, let me try to put it to you this way. If you created something and you invested your life, your energy, your time, your money, your talent into building something only to have someone else, say a thug, come in and completely obliterate or destroy or sabotage that thing that you did, that built, that you poured money, your energy into. If you don't get angry, you really don't care. Caring people get angry at injustice. Hopefully I've made my point. The second question that you have to deal with is how do you know that you're loved by this God? So let me put it this way. If all you have is a God of love that never gets angry, then really all you have is a God of sentimentality. That's really all that you can say is that, let me put it this way, okay? If you or I were to go downtown, all right, and while you're downtown, someone jumps out in front of a car that's coming down the street, says, I want to show you how much I love you, and they jump out in the middle of the street and get struck by a car and they die. You'd look at them and be like, that's really stupid, like, that's not even a good example. You might, some people may be like, well, isn't that, don't you just feel love because the death of that person was just an example of kindness and love. That's why some people want to look at the cross, that Jesus' death on the cross was just an example of sacrifice. But if you were to die by jumping in front of a car, just downtown slow, people would just think There's, that's full, it's not even sentimental, that's silly. But if while you're crossing the walk down there, like between you know, Ross and Gap, and while you're crossing right there, you see something that your friend doesn't see, and you immediately push them out of the way, and while you're pushing them out of the way, you're struck by a car, and you die, your friend will look at you and say, see how much they love me. They were willing to give themselves for me to save me, rescue me from something I was totally oblivious to. This is the picture of the God who loves, but also equally gets angry. What Jesus gets angry with, what God gets angry with, is oppression, brokenness, sin. This is a sickness that God gets angry with. It's not just simply a docile sickness that just somehow infects people's hearts. We contribute to that sickness. And so what we see with Jesus is that Jesus engages in this and is willing ultimately to drink the cup. So let me really just kind of ask you this question. How do you know that you're loved by your God? If all you can simply say is, I just have a sentimental feeling, really the picture of the God of the Bible is not just that you have a sentiment, but you have an action. If God is a God of love, but also has 
deep-rooted anger and hatred towards sin and rebellion and brokenness that this sinfulness has caused in this world, what you have is a picture of Jesus in the garden, totally coming undone, breaking apart, unraveling at the thought of having to drink this cup, knowing that this cup is filled with something that will bring great devastation upon himself. In other words, you see a picture of God who doesn't just simply sweep away sinfulness, sweep away injustice, sweep away this into a realm of indifference. What you have is a picture of a God who actually deals with oppression, deals with sin, deals with sickness of sin in this world, and he deals with it by Jesus drinking this cup. This is what we see in Jesus. It's almost as if in Gethsemane, it's as if God basically said to Jesus, here is the cup of wrath against sin. It's either them that will drink it, and they will be crushed, they will unravel, they will break apart, they will be destroyed, or you will drink it. And what you have in the cross, in the garden, is Jesus resigning himself, saying, I will drink it for them. I will come undone so that those who are coming undone don't have to ultimately come undone. I will be destroyed so that those who are being destroyed in this life, just by sheer life, won't have to ultimately be destroyed. Probably one of the ones who said this best and described this best is C.S. Lewis, the way he oftentimes does. In a little book uh, called uh, Letters to Malcolm, um, he's having this dialogue with this guy, and in this dialogue, his friend suggests to C.S. Lewis uh, his concern, his frustration over the idea of a wrathful God, or over the idea of hell. And in this particular picture, what he does is he basically says, I kind of choose to think of God um, not simply as an angry deity, but simply as like a live wire, right? Like a live electric wire. Like if you touch it, if you're foolish enough to touch it, to cross it, you'll be electrocuted, and you might die. And C.S. Lewis basically writes back, and here's what Lewis says. He says, what do you suppose you've gained by submitting the image of a live wire for that of an angered, for that of angered majesty? You have shut us all up in despair, for the angry, uh, the, for the angry can forgive, but electricity can't. Look, we have to deal with this. We can't just simply put it out of our minds because it's uncomfortable, it's challenging, it's easy for us, I know, in our modern culture, kind of think of the idea of God, especially in light of how many times this has been caricatured. It's easy for us to think of this in terms of just God as like a primitive characteristic trait, that God has sort of graduated or grown up from that, and God's not like that. But the reality is, is that you and I deal with this on a day-to-day level. Let me give you an example. If someone were to cross your path or take something from you or rape someone you loved, or steal something you had that you valued, your response would be anger. You'd be angry. And you would demand for justice to be done. All I'm simply saying is that this is the picture in the Bible. That God created human beings to reflect him, to honor him, to love him. And let me try to put it to you this way. If I can break it down in the most simplest form. If God... If God really in him is the source of light, love, and life, if indeed God is the source of some total of light, life, and love, then if human beings who are created to reflect this God make a decision, a choice to turn from this God who is light, 
life, and love, then we are not entering into a path that's more loving, more light-filled. We're actually walking into a path away from a God who's light, life, and love. We're walking into a path of darkness, exclusion, and death. And the idea, the concept of hell is really after death, after this life, a sense of basically going on forever in this particular state. The idea is, is that God is saying this does not have to be the case. Your soul does not have to deteriorate, does not have to come apart, does not have to break down. Because Jesus says, I'll drink the cup. That's the whole point. The third thing I want to take a look at, almost done here, is the substitutionary surrender. Verses 37 to 42, I want to read again this little passage here. It says in verse 37, Then he came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? Taking your rest. It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. The betrayer is at hand. And what we see here throughout this little storyline of Jesus' life in the garden is that Jesus does pray to the Father. He says, Father, if there's any other way for us to rescue broken humanity, if there's any other way for us to restore and repair and redeem that which has gone so astray, something that has gone so far away from us, not into greater light, not into greater life, not into greater freedom, but into greater bondage, into greater darkness, into greater despair. Jesus says, and let that way prevail. But the Father says, there's no other way. The only way is for you to go into that despair, that brokenness, the darkness, where they're at. That's the only way. Jesus then prays, and he says, nevertheless, let your will be done. And then we have sort of the rest of the storyline, which to me, is, is, there's, there's a lot of irony here. Um, because three times, you have sort of this strange narrative that basically says, and Jesus went and prayed, comes back, and his disciples are asleep. Even though Jesus says, stay awake and pray with me. I think the picture that Mark and really all the other uh, gospel writers are trying to communicate to us is that even Jesus' closest friends betray him. Look, I don't know what type of Christianity maybe you were brought up with or the type of Christianity maybe that I think you have today, but there's a tendency for us to look at ourselves and be like, well, I'm part of this particular group of people, so we're part of the in crowd. We're part of the faithful people of Jesus. We teach the Bible right. We do things according to the Bible. We live the way God wants us to live, but everybody else out there, they're, they're all kind of messed up. Everybody that's out there, they need saving. They need help. But look at us, we're the right ones. What I think this story tells us is in reality, even those who think they're the closest, even those who are in the inner circle are the ones that are numbered among the sinners too, the most. And what we see here in the storyline is that Jesus basically matches their prayerlessness with his prayerfulness we see sort of the substitution where Jesus is saying to his followers, 
who, you know, by way of the storyline, all of them are Jews. If you know any of the further storyline in the rest of the Bible, you realize that the Jewish nation was called by God to be a light to the nations. Jesus even rebukes the religious leadership for their misuse of the temple. The temple was to be a house of prayer, a place where people prayed, a place where people went to meet with God and fellowship with God and love God and, and meet God there and have their sins forgiven and washed and become part of God's covenant people. It was open to all the nations, not just Jews, not just a select group of people, not just a group of ethnic people, but every human being that would put their confidence and faith in God. And this would be done by way of the people of Israel being a light. But what happened repeatedly over and over and over again is the people of Israel didn't pray the way they should, weren't reflecting the light the way they were supposed to. And we see this sort of climax here in the story of the garden where Jesus three times goes back to his own closest friends and he's like, because you're sleeping again? You're failing again? You can't even do this? You can't even be a light? Even in my most traumatic, difficult... I mean, here's the amazing thing to me is that Jesus actually tells them, here's what's going on, guys. My soul is full of great distress, all right? Let me ask you this. If you had a friend and they came to you and they're like, look, I just got the diagnosis. It's positive. I'm dying. My soul is full of distress. Most of us would be like, I'm coming over right now. I'll bring over some food. I'll hang out. I'll spend some time with you. I want to pray over you. I'm not going to leave your side. If you're married to someone and they go through that, you'll do that. Here's Jesus basically saying, I'm going through the greatest, most distressing period of my life. And his disciples, three times, they fall asleep. Again, it's easy for us to judge them and be like, they're failures. But the reality is, that's, that's, that's us. It's all of us. But what we see here in the story is that Jesus matches their prayerlessness with his prayerfulness. He prays on their behalf for them, for strength, to do what God calls them to do. And ultimately, Jesus surrenders himself to the purpose and to the will of the Father. Look, at the end of the day, if you're ever going to be someone that's going to make a difference in someone else's life, substitutionary sacrifice is the only way to make it happen. Let me give you an example. If you have somebody in your life that you know that they're emotionally vulnerable or broken, maybe they're a drug addict, and if in your heart you kind of make this determination, like, I'm going to help them out, you better be prepared for the next several weeks, maybe months, of losing a lot of sleep, going through a lot of money, Maybe having to give up a room in your house I means you're going to lose a lot of autonomy, lose a lot of privacy. But those are the prices you pay. In other words, what you're doing is you're taking upon yourself a level, a depth of their suffering in order to help them out, to free them, to liberate them. At least that's the goal. Or, for example, if you're a parent and you've got a child, if while your children are young, if you have this mentality in your life, you're like, you know what? I value my autonomy, my freedom above and beyond anything else, and I don't care if my kid needs me. I'm just going to keep shutting them out. I'm going to stick them in the crib and just shut the door on them because I want to read. I want to you know, watch television. I want to go hang out with my friends. I don't want to be a parent. What you'll do is you will actually create a child that, when they grow up, are full of just difficult and hardship within their life. So in other words, either you make the sacrifice while your children are young and you give up your freedom, give up your autonomy in order to pour into their life and then you will breed children that are stable when they're older or you may end up being a parent that when your kids are like 20, 30, 40 years old, you're dealing with a lot of trash that may have actually had something to do with the fact that you were trying to live autonomous life when they were young. 
In other words, at some point, if you're going to make a difference in someone else's life, you got to be willing to pick up some of their garbage. And what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus making this substitutionary surrender and sacrifice of his life, saying, I will bear their sin. I will take upon myself their shame, their sin, their disobedience, their brokenness. And in their place, I will be broken. What you have is Mark, once again, giving us a picture of Jesus as being a king, not the way kings oftentimes came onto the world scene, not waving a sword, not looking for someone to lop their head off, not looking for someone to dominate over. That's the way oftentimes kings come onto scenes, right? What you have with the picture of Jesus is a king, the king, the king of kings, coming onto the world scene, not looking to bring judgment, but looking to bear judgment. Not looking to force his cup of wrath down his ungrateful subjects' throats, but looking to drink the cup of wrath that they deserve for himself. In other, in other words, to give them life, he gives his life. This is the picture that we see of Jesus. And I want to finish with this thought. The last thing I want to take a look at is the garden. It starts in the very first verse that we read. In verse 32, it says, And they came to the place called Gethsemane. Some translations may say the garden of Gethsemane. We know that other passages in the storyline tell us that this is a garden. Got a little chart here to show you. I'm going to make some interesting comparisons. That in a lot of ways, Gethsemane is sort of this ultimate anti-garden of Eden. It's sort of the mirror the opposite image of this in a lot of ways, sort of the white, the black, kind of the picture of this. And what we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane is in the Garden of Eden, we see some interesting parallels. In the Garden of Eden, we see Adam, he began his life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it's as if Jesus basically comes at the end of his life. In the Garden of Eden, we see that Adam rebelled. It was his place of rebellion. God had given him everything. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's as if Jesus says, I'll obey. What's absolutely amazing about this whole scenario, this transaction between God and Jesus, is with Adam and Eve, God basically came to Adam and says, Adam, don't eat the fruit and you'll live. In other words, obey me and you will live. God comes to Jesus in another garden and says, obey me and you'll be crushed. This is amazing. I mean, Adam had literally the world open to him. He says, you can have everything you want. It's all yours. Just obey me, and you will have life. You walk in my ways, and you will live. To Jesus, he says, obey me, and it will mean you're crushing. You will pay a price that you didn't bring up yourself, but you will bear for them who deserve it. In Eden, Adam hid himself. But in Gethsemane, Jesus completely, openly presents himself, pours out his heart. This is what's amazing to me is that, you know, it's interesting. In most uh, heroic tales, rarely do you see a side of the hero in an area of weakness. And in the story of Jesus, in fact, if you read a lot of ancient literature, Jesus dies comparatively different than most of the other ancients in ancient literature. I'll give you an example. Uh, around the same time, there was a storyline that kind of chronicled the life of what's called, um, uh, the story was called the Maccabees, uh, first and second Maccabees. And the story of the life of a group of guys, that were, they were martyrs. They died for their faith in God. And when they died, when they were basically being put to death, 
These guys died like these, with these heroic words in their mouth. They're like, look, if you take us, then God's going to take you down. And so they're dying, talking smack. All right? Jesus, we're going to see him dying, not opening his mouth. Jesus is not like, often. Jesus is, is not just simply averting pain. Jesus is allowing the pain to fill up his soul. Jesus is, at the same time, by obeying the Father, allowing himself to engage the full weight of the suffering, but at the same time, he's completely submitted himself to the Father. Most of us, we may have sort of this mentality in our life where we say, I want to be completely open and transparent before God. I'll I'll show God everything. I'll give God everything in my life. But at the end of the day, there's a tendency for us to maybe say, but I don't want to be fully obedient in every area. In other words, if God asks me to do things that might be a little bit troubling or challenging, because, you know, one of the values in modern-day America, at least in our culture, is like open transparency. It's like the more crap I tell you guys about my life, the more you come up to me afterwards, you're like, that was an amazing sermon. Why was it so great? Because you told me about all your suffering. It happens every single week. Anytime I tell you junk in my life, people come up, they're like, that was awesome. What? What was it about? You told me about all the things that you're suffering. People love to hear personal stories about our personal suffering. We love transparency is all I'm trying, trying to say. Like, that's my point. Like, where's he going with this? I'm just simply saying we love open, honest transparency. Right? I'm not bagging on that saying there's anything wrong with that. All I'm simply trying to say is that there's something that resonates with that in us about just wanting to see open transparency. But rarely do we oftentimes see that coupled with somebody saying, I will let God have every bit of my life. And in Jesus, we see total open transparency, but total, complete submission of his will to the Father. And it led him to the point of the cross. And what we see with this in summary and closing, it's as if what we see in Jesus is that if you and I, as we look at the life of Jesus in the garden, if we see the fact that out of infinite love that he has for the Father, he's willing to obey the Father to drink a cup of intense suffering for the sake of saving people that have rebelled and have, have caused all creation to go astray and go awry. That says something profoundly about the love that this king has for his subjects. In other words, to let me put it this way, the picture that's being painted and portrayed for us in this storyline is that the father is willing to send the son, and the son is willing to drink a cup of incredible suffering, separated from the father, disengaged with the father, out of relationship with the father, to go into the place where you and I live on a day-to-day life, a brokenness, of suffering, destruction, in order for us to be made whole. We have a picture of a God who loves us. On a practical level, I want to think about how this sort of works out. Because in a very practical way, I mean, we can spend a lot of time talking about some of the practicalities of this. But in short, my thought is this. Is that if we have a God that has demonstrated this type of love to us in spite of the pain that it was going to bring him, the suffering, the disengagement, the unraveling that it was going to bring to him, to come to us who are unraveling. All right, This might be the, def- the definition of some of your lives right now. Like unraveling. Like if you were to define your life right now, unraveled, unraveling. If we have a picture of God that's being portrayed here in the gospel that he comes to us for the purpose 
of being unraveled so that you and I who are being unraveled could actually be given life back to us and be made whole. Then that tells us that he's very serious about dealing with sin, but simultaneously incredibly loving. We need a God that is radically just, that hates sin, but also we need a God that is radically loving. But if you, all you have is a God that's loving, but it's not just, all you have is sentimentalism. But if all you have is a God that's just, who's not loving, all you have is an angry, just frustrated, grumpy God that has no ability to demonstrate kindness. But if you have a God who is just and loving combined, as we see in the life of Jesus, then what you have is a God who not only created you, but also loves you in order for the purpose of restoring and redeeming you. And I think how this works itself out practically in just a simple way is that it gives us strength to live our lives in a world full of suffering. Because Jesus faced suffering the way that he suffered and the suffering that he endured was an ultimate suffering, then that gives me hope to be able to endure suffering in ways that's not infinite. I'll give you an example. This past week, kind of a crazy week, so here's a little story about myself, all right? Don't come up afterwards and say thank you don't just don't that's why i'm doing this kind of a crazy week uh my wife had pneumonia for two weeks it was not very good um you know we hadn't been to trader joe's for 14 days it was kind of a bummer uh we we ended that break last friday night which was awesome i took my girls out for valentine's day dinner and we went to traders afterwards which was awesome family shopping is always the best but um saturday uh we went in and we found out my dog's dying i had to put her down so i took her in the other day and had to put her down it was tough yes you can say oh that's sad um it was tough it was hard it's hard for my family um and then just last night as i was you know just thinking about this past week and kind of craziness of this past week i was reading on the internet um, my good friend Britt merrick uh who has a daughter named daisy some of you guys have been praying for her. You've been knowing, knowing about what's been going on in her life. Uh, Daisy actually just passed away um, yesterday morning, which was, in a lot of ways, kind of put everything into perspective of losing a dog, losing different things like that in my life, and going through this circumstance. You begin to realize, like, here's a guy like Britt who lost his own daughter. What's the relationship like between a father and his daughter? Valuable? It's insanely valuable. I have two daughters. Both my daughters are teenagers. And some of the most traumatizing, anxiety-ridden moments in my life have been when my mind has wandered into thinking, what would happen if I lost my daughters? Like, that paralyzes me to think about that. Just paralyzes me to think, what would it be like to lose a daughter? But when you begin to think about the fact of a father losing his son, not just because of randomness, but because of a very specific, determined purpose to rescue, to save, to redeem people made in his image who rebelled and sinned, that means you, because he loves you. That gives us a strength, a poise, a sense of equilibrium to live our lives for his glory now. To realize because Jesus did this for us, this makes me a type of person, turns me into a type of person, that allows me to have a sense of radical humility. Not the kind that goes around and boasts itself. I'm so humble. No, but a sense of humility, because that's really not humbleness if you're like, oh, that's cool. Uh, but a sense of humbleness of saying, I don't deserve this, but it also makes me bold. Because I realize 
because he took such a bold step to rescue, to redeem me, to demonstrate his love to me, it makes me both humble and radically bold. Rarely do you see those traits in anybody. But you see those traits in Jesus, and you see those traits in Jesus' people, that they can actually live a life without a condescension towards everybody else, meaning they're humble, they love other people in spite of differences, but also at the same time, they're able to be bold and love people to the point of communicating the truth to them of the gospel. To understand what Jesus did for you in the garden does something to rewire the condition of your heart, to free you, to free you from yourself, to free you from your sin, to free you from the things that bind you because he's a king that loves you. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna finish. I'm gonna have the guys come up. They'll lead, lead us in a couple of songs to close. And I encourage you, we have communion in the back. As we sing, you can partake of communion it's in the back. And just so that you know, there's little cups there. Just, just dip the thing in there. Don't, don't, don't pick it up. Don't, don't you drink the cup. Like, that's not a cup you want to drink either. It's like a um, like cup that Jesus rescued you from drinking. Just dip it and do it together if you like as a family. If you're a parent, you'd like to go pick up your kids, you're more than welcome to go pick up your kids. You can do it as a community group. If you have roommates, you can partake of it together as a group. If you want to do it by yourself, that's fine too. We're going to sing. We're going to sing a few songs. I want to invite you to worship God, to love him, to confess sin to him, confess your anxieties to him. Because some of us might be gripped and held and bound. and You might be coming undone because of anxieties that you have. But if you see the fact that Jesus took upon himself the ultimate the only true things that could ever really destroy and unravel you. He took those things upon himself because he loves you. Then that gives you a sense of wholeness because you're loved. So I want to invite you to worship God, to confess sin to him. Uh, we have rugs in the front. If you'd like to just get on your knees and get on your face before God and worship him, we'll have some people available afterwards over by the cross during worship, I should say, to pray with you. So why don't we all stand right now and I'm going to pray over you guys. We'll sing a few songs. We'll take communion. We'll worship be prayed for if there's any of you that need to be prayed for and we'll dismiss you guys God thank you for the cross uh, we want to just sing and lift up our heart of praise and worship and honor to you because of what you've done for us so God let just the songs from our hearts be one of crying out of gratitude of thankfulness confession of sin God letting go of things that may have uh, interrupted or interfered things that Jesus you died for set us free from so God free our hearts liberate our hearts to not just simply have an experience of worshiping you but from that experience of worshiping you to be the people you call us to be to reflect you in this world the way Jesus you reflected the love of the Father to us in this world taking our shame taking our sin God help us to live that life of learning what it means to take the burdens of other people upon ourselves to bring liberty bring freedom to them in Jesus' name.